This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. I want to say thank you to everyone around the world who listens and writes in. Thank you. And also the Patreons, our technical wizard, Matthew Wayne Selznick, holding the fort on the West Coast. But really, you, the listening audience, thanks thanks for making it a community and a tribe. I love the show and I love our audience. And part a big part of it is the amazing guests who come on. One of my favorite guests is coming back on today. I just love her work. I love what she writes about. I love what she stands for. She wrote a book that I've actually looked at twice now, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. She's a medical doctor. She's a forensic psychiatrist. She's the official psychiatrist of the What Matters Most show, whether she's, we've appointed her. It's so wonderful to welcome back Dr. Bandy Lee. Well, thank you very much. Your story in particular and the way in your tweets and everything you put out, it reminds me of the classic thriller scientific movie where the beautiful scientist is trying to warn the world either about a comet, a plague, a bad guy. The world doesn't listen. In the movie, they usually finally do and there's a happy ending. But I feel like you've been warning us for years, not only about particular person or people, but all of it. And yet, rather than be embraced and have what you're trying to share to save us enacted, you have instead been marginalized. Is that kind of an accurate metaphor for what you feel is happening to? Well, uh, I guess the scientific fiction movies are uh, trying to describe something in reality, and we are living it. Unfortunately, when things become very dire, that's exactly when we deny what is happening and start not listening to those who are trying to tell us what is happening. That may describe our current predicament. Otherwise, we would be turning the tide right now. What is it about the human mind that does exactly what you just described? Turns away, distracts, and goes into denial, often creates addictions, rather than just deal with what is and what needs to be done? It is a lack of belief that we can deal with what is happening and that we have the ability to and that the problem is manageable and that there are solutions, which usually there are. There are usually many solutions to draw from, but it takes our admitting that there is a problem. And yet we won't on several fronts. How distressing is that for you personally? Well, of course, it's very distressing because dealing with prevention, uh, I've worked in public health for uh, 20 years now, and uh, knowing that there are means of prevention, and that prevention is highly effective, but when something works, we don't realize how well it's working because Uh, The calamities haven't come, but when the calamities do come, we believe that prevention is no longer relevant, yet it can be. I mean, we can prevent further spread and we can prevent actual demise. As long as we're alive, we can prevent. I know it's a tough question. What happened to the American psyche? I feel like we've gone off the rails a bit, maybe more than a bit. Well, that's exactly why I started speaking up in 
2017, especially with the conference at Yale School of Medicine and early, uh, early on that year, because with what we were seeing in terms of uh, the kind of psychological impairments that were allowed to take hold of the U.S. presidency, this would be the inevitable outcome. So the full course was visible, visualizable at that stage. It has, nothing has happened outside of our predictions. Uh, the only thing that has happened is that our, our fears have come true exactly in the manner that we uh, estimated it would in the absence of any intervention. And so uh, what we didn't expect was that there wouldn't be any intervention, no matter what we tried to, what we tried to inform the public of. When did you first realize that we were in serious trouble? Do you remember? Was there anything that individually that kind of put you over the top? Or was it just the avalanche of daily stuff? Well, there was a particular episode where I witnessed um, Donald Trump, the candidate, interact with his followers on television. Because I don't have a television of my own. I happened to see one at the hospital. and. Um, it reminded me a great deal of the prisoners I treat and the gang, how uh, gang dynamics are, which are very much like cults. Um, but it begins with a mentally impaired person exploiting and dating on uh, vulnerable individuals. What are the dynamics of a cult like that? Because I've been calling it a cult too for about five or six years. And the more it unfolds, the more cult-like it is. He was right when he said, I could walk out on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and they won't care. That should have been a very alarming sign. But instead, uh, he was humored and it was taken as entertainment. And experts who could speak about it were not coming forward as much. By the time we did come forward and were effective, were able to raise the topic to the number one national topic of conversation um, and all the news networks were inviting us. Uh, there's almost no major cable or network news uh, program I wasn't invited to. Uh, and that, that caused the American Psychiatric Association to clamp down and go on a publicity campaign against us calling us armchair psychiatrists and uh, how we were violating ethics and so on, whereas we believed we were keeping with ethics, keeping with our duty to society, because we have, we have a responsibility to society as well as patients, as our ethics code says in the first few sentences. Wasn't there a super large donation, coincidentally, around that time to the AMA? There was. Well, uh, it didn't seem to require a large donation for the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, to act as it did. It said that it was reaffirming the Goldwater rule. That's the, the rule that they kept um, showing as a reason for our being unethical, even though the Goldwater rule falls under the section where physicians are called to participate in activities that improve the community and better public health. 
So whatever we do should serve public health. But uh, but they raised uh, the Goldwater rule to superseding public health. So in other words, the privileges of a public figure, powerful political figures usually, um, are given far greater greater priority than public health and even survival. So once they did that, um, the Trump administration rewarded them handsomely with unprecedented funding, federal funding, and they were able to move their headquarters from Virginia to a central part of Washington, D.C., where they're now shoulder to shoulder with other Washington lobbyists. Thanks for pointing that out, because I did follow the money there, and I thought there might have been a quid pro quo beforehand. You would think if a person was going to be in charge of the nuclear codes and thus complete planetary annihilation, you would want them to be psychologically fit. I'm shocked. Not really. But I would think if I was suddenly making the rules as the overlord, that anyone that had to be in public office at a high level would have to take mandatory tests, several layers, like you do for several jobs that are hardly as important, just so we don't end up with what we had or a lunatic in a position to destroy the world like a Putin or Trump was. Yes, and even military officers who handle nuclear weapons are required to undergo rigorous psychological testing every year. But the one who commands them does not. Uh, It doesn't make logical sense. And it would be hard to believe that the founders of our nation, if given the tools that we have right now, would have rejected uh, a basic mental capacity evaluation before taking such an important office. Yes, and it's interesting to bring up the founders because I feel like with all the technological and advancements we've made in general over the last two, three hundred years, it would be insane for human medicine or science to base everything on what a bunch of white slave-owning guys back in the 1700s, late 1600s thought and project that out over time. Like if they said, well, the founders never used antibiotics, so we can't. That would be insane. Right. And they were enlightened. <laughs> they were they were products, literally, of the Enlightenment. And they were enlightened and progressive for their time. But, of course, that's the key phrase, for their time. And if we don't take the spirit of the law, uh, but only the literal alliteration of the law, then uh, then we'd be living still in the dark ages. And so it doesn't make sense that, um, that essentially the, the originalist argument is to try to remain in, uh, in ignorance in ways that not even, that we did not even in those days. Yeah, and, I, and honestly, I see it transparently over and over again as a reason for racism, misogyny, white privilege, white patriarchy. Yes, which are my organization, the World Mental Health Coalition, has declared now a cultural disorder. In other words, it's mental health, the mental disorder writ large, uh, because we no longer have an excuse for it. I was going to say, why was one exceptionally horrible leader, specifically Donald Trump, how was he able to be so collectively destructive? I almost feel like this one horrible human being 
unleashed, like gave permission or something. The demons now were all of a sudden that red hat or people everywhere could be horrible. You have candidates posing with guns, people behaving horrendously. And it seems like I'm not blaming him, but somehow because he was there and he succeeded and he was so horrible, it unleashed something collectively. Is that an, an accurate assessment? Yes, that's exactly why we uh, framed our our action as a public health one. Uh, I at least have said since the introduction, since my first introduction of the dangerous case of Donald Trump, I stated that the book was not about Donald Trump. It was about the situation of placing such an individual in a position of extraordinary power and influence. And uh, what we were afraid of was not as much his own psychological problems, but the dangers he would spread as a result, uh, socially, culturally, geopolitically, and civically, which he has. And uh, when, when you might make an analogy with bioterrorism, when you engage in bioterrorism, it's not the organism itself that is so dangerous. It's the, the, the environment in which you are spreading it and deliberately spreading it to make it uh, contagious and, and uh, annihilative and even genocidal ways. And um, the situation we created and the lack of intervention over the four years of the presidency and even beyond is the reason for the current predicament. And you are right, the losses, the destruction is truly staggering. I mean, more than 1 million deaths from COVID alone, which were the vast majority of which were uh, preventable. That's greater than the losses of any war. And that's not the only losses we've had. Wasn't even thinking of the pandemic and that whole inject bleach craziness. There was a study I read today that said Republicans died at a much higher rate than Democrats from COVID. And it said experts wonder why. And I laughed out loud. It was like, wonder why? Look what their news is and what their leaders, the leaders basically marched them towards death or encouraged behaviors that were would be considered suicidal from a sane standpoint. That's what happens when you block one of the major public health interventions, especially when there's no vaccine or treatment, which is education. And even in the political realm, uh, before the, sometimes I call it the, the psychic pandemic that Donald Trump introduced, education was critical and education would have helped prevent a lot of it. And it's still possible, which is why hearing from mental health professionals and the fact that you have me on is another act of uh, trying to prevent the further spread of what is happening now, because it, it won't be curbed until we curb it. And we know how to curb it based on science and public health measures. And, uh, and it's also happened several times over history and in several places around the world right now. 
there also is a nihilistic element to this, isn't there? It seems like a death cult a lot of the times. Well, that's also a sign of uh, that's a sign of reduced mental health. When when our own mental health is is deteriorating, we start making destructive choices, not constructive ones. It's precisely at the time when you need treatment the most is when our minds uh, seek destruction of ourselves or others, uh, make choices that further our disease, and um, and one becomes incapable of uh, healing oneself, which is, for example, seeking treatment. That's why forced treatment exists in mental health as, as a form of treatment, because in our nation that values civil liberties, we have recognized that mental disorder is a curtailment of our liberty and choice. No matter how the person is insisting it is their choice, oftentimes it's the disease speaking. And you need uh, specialists to be able to distinguish that. And we know that that is the case because after the, the patient is treated, they may go kicking and screaming and be taken away in an ambulance against their will. But once they're treated, they come back to thank us. That's almost a ubiquitous uh, experience among mental health professionals. And you can see from their gratitude just how imprisoned their own minds were from the disease. Uh, it's very much like addiction as well. Um, addiction In addiction, we see that an individual is insisting that they are leading the lifestyle they desire, um, furthering their own destruction, alienating their loved ones. But once they recover from the addiction, they recognize how much they were destroying their own lives. I'm glad you used the word disease, too, which for me evokes compassion. Yes. You wouldn't hate anyone who had leukemia, but you would treat it. It would actually be cruel not to treat it. Exactly. And it is a disease. We don't take mental illness, mental disease seriously enough. It's almost like people think it's a choice. It's not. It's the same way. You can't tell an addict to just stop or just say no. That's cruel. That's right. That's why education is so important, because there was a time when we considered AIDS to be a moral failing or cancer to be something you could never speak about. And there was uh, further back in history, we thought all diseases were some kind of personal, even moral failing. We know that that's not true. And the more we uh, learn about the diseases and learn how to prevent and treat them, the, the mystique goes away and we can handle uh, what happens so as to uh, optimize our lives and reach our full potential. It's about time we do this with mental health, but we constantly slide back through actions such as the American Psychiatric Association's that in the name of reducing stigma, silenced all discourse when study after study has shown that it is silence that creates stigma, not discussion. How would you treat someone like that? I mean, is it medicine and therapy? Well, you have to intervene early. The earlier you intervene, the more you can collaborate, the more you can enlist their 
their uh, consent and uh, and willingness, in fact, to leave them until they have gotten so ill that they will do anything to avoid doctors and hospitals and run the other way. It's actually astonishing just how much they avoid these things when they are acutely ill, uh, even as they are insisting that nothing is wrong with them. Uh, you would wonder if they truly believed that nothing was wrong, then they wouldn't mind so much being examined, but they avoid it at all costs, which means that deep down they know something is wrong. And it's, it's a very painful state. I mean, these individuals suffer a great deal in that state. So we wish to intervene early, uh, knowing about the progression of the disease um, and, and just how treatable it is. Uh, it's incumbent on readers to treat. And, uh, and that's what we have tried to do, but weren't able to when it came to large scale uh, intervention because we did not have the collaboration of other fields or even uh, organizations of our own field or one organization, which was the APA. Other organizations did try. So true. So someone who has been criming and getting away with this type of behavior for 40 years and then became famous because of it, that would be an almost impossible situation to treat. In terms of cure, yes. In fact, um, many of the traits uh, that, that we found were uh, no longer treatable at that point. If anyone intervened earlier, if we as a society learn to recognize these traits very early on, or better, uh, produce societal conditions so that such traits do not appear in such a widespread way, then uh, then we would not have this problem. But we have a culture that actually advantages individuals with these uh, defects and place them in high-ranking positions where they can abuse power and try to overcompensate for their lack of uh, self-love uh, self or uh, lack of sense of adequacy or self-worth uh, through abuses of power, through attaining, seizing, and abusing power, uh, then, then we're actually helping these conditions to duplicate themselves. And once these harmful and destructive individuals take power, they generate conditions, deprive the population, create uh, conditions whereby more such individuals will be generated. And so it's a self-perpetuating process. I have a friend, I won't say his name, but it's a casual friend from the coffee shop. And I'm finding these type of guys, all the guys that are like this, they're white, older males. He's probably about 60, relatively successful. He's a builder. He's not a drifter, has a family, but he's kind of estranged from his wife a bit and his family because he's gone down the conspiracy QAnon rabbit hole. He keeps telling me some of the craziest shit. There's no other way to say it that I can't believe. And I keep asking him, where are you reading this? What's going on? Like the gold has been made radioactive. The dollar, you won't need money. Uh, you won't need passports. Obama's going to be put in jail any day. And I'll say, for what? Crimes against humanity. And then nothing ever comes true of it. I mean, it's just nuts. 
And if you saw him, you'd say, oh, that guy's okay. But if you talk to him, even though he's functioning in society, you know, well-dressed, but he seems nuts. How do you deal with somebody like that? I mean, I just try to be kind. Well, uh, you don't confront their false beliefs because you can't. The reasons for their holding on to such beliefs is elsewhere, not in the beliefs themselves. Uh, and you try to address those problems in society and interpersonal relationships. Uh, the best you can do as a friend or family member or a colleague is that you leave them some space, a place to return to uh, once they abandon those beliefs, if they were to choose to do so. So you, uh, you treat them as human beings and be a welcoming friend if they were to return but the but to correct the situation is really to have to change the societal conditions that gave rise to these widespread beliefs in the first place, which have a lot to do with uh, socioeconomic conditions, deprivation, exclusion, and then the media environment. And I feel a sense of isolation, too, and the pandemic sort of accelerated, where if you three years ago, if you start talking about that around the old water cooler, might have been laughed at, made fun of, and then sort of maybe adapted. But the isolation, I keep seeing these guys down in their basement, spending hours on the internet. And I was wondering, Dr. Lee, what what makes somebody get hooked by that QAnon crazy stuff? And other people look at it and just laugh at it and see it as absurd and insane. What is that just based on a healthy sense of self-esteem, a, a sense of value in the community, connection to friends? Do we know? Well, the need for connection and the need for identity and also a, a healthy need to solve problems they see obviously in society can pull one initially into those kinds of situations. But the agenda of the cult is, of course, very different. It's to pull people in, to once they're in, to keep them in, and to bind them further and further into outlandish ideas so that they will not be able to connect with others in the outside world, and also uh, to feel um, to have invested so much that if one were to admit that one was taken in by false ideas, then it would be too painful to make that admission. So you you double down and you invest even further and go uh, keep going down the rabbit hole. There seems to be a lot of ego involved too, right? Like they feel like they're smarter than everyone else. They're one of the few that have cracked the code. And it looks like it's set up as a psychop like that. Like keep getting farther and farther from true reality but you and you alone know you figured it out and ever the rest of us are just like sheeple yes you're you reverse the situation project onto others what you are uh actually doing yourself so others are the ones who are too gullible to know the truth um and uh and you yourself are have privy to to actual reality when in fact the reverse is true. My friend had to divorce her husband because he went so far down that rabbit hole, they, they couldn't connect. He literally believed the earth was flat. Um, and it sounds like a joke, but 
he believed the world was flat and he was going to these red pill conferences and it was just a bridge too far. She couldn't just give him space. She ultimately had to, but she couldn't do anything to help him. And it's heartbreaking for her and the kids, their grown kids. But he thinks they're nuts that he he's trying to, you know, he's the one that knows the truth. There's a film that a friend of mine made, Jen Senko, who made the, the brainwashing of my dad. Uh, it was, um, I was impressed at the prescience of the film. Uh, she made it in 2016 uh, about how Fox News was destroying all these relationships and and families, uh, girlfriends, boyfriends, uh, friends, all around the country. And we are seeing that accelerate because now Fox News is one of the milder versions of these types of media now. And I know for a fact that it has also proliferated around the world. So when you have, it's really toxins for the mind, just as you would put in, put poison, if you put in, put poison into the drinking water, many people will get sick. These are mental poisons that are being put in the, we have gotten rid of all the regulatory mechanisms for spreading this kind of uh, toxicity. And indeed, the opposite is occurring in that it's far more lucrative and profitable and therefore you're more likely to stay on uh, have a platform if you spread this kind of toxicity than if you were spreading the truth or spreading actual news and that is a very concerning environment that's a great point we had jen on up to help promote the movie she was fabulous so she might have been on twice no she was on once and Matthew Modine, who was behind that and then narrated it, I know him as a friend from L.A. when I was working in the film business, not like close friends, but we still keep in touch. And he he's a great person. But I think he told me about the film first. I'm not sure. But we had her on and it, I thought it was a very powerful film. I didn't know you guys knew each other. I knew her. I came to know her because of the film. And we we immediately connected and I, I felt that it was a great contribution to mental health of our nation. <laughs> Concerns that I've had for decades, even before the film came out. I think it was starting in the late 90s that I became afraid that if Fox News were to continue on, it would become uh, a serious driver of mental health problems around the country. And that's what has indeed happened. Prescient once again, and I see it as a poison. When I look at those websites, just to keep track of them, it's so poisonous. It's such a distorted worldview. And yet where I live in Florida, there are neighbors of mine, mostly older white, who watch it basically all the time. The TV's always on. And I know people like Jen who have lost their parents or whoever to this black hole, which is the Murdoch media empire. And they just leave it on all the time. And one of my friends was telling me her mother has the updates coming to her phone. I met the mother again this summer. And I swear, you could just look at her and thought, wow, she looks crazy. Her eyes and they're they're terrified of drag shows and CRT and whatever the latest, the caravan that's coming 
towards the every those magical caravans that always show up during the midterms or when there's a crisis in the right wing media world suddenly there's a, the same footage every single time and then they magically disappear after the election they i don't know what happens to the 40,000 evil doers headed to the border they just go through a back into a circle or something but they fall for it every time yes because well they're they're enticed as as you would with with candy or uh things that are not good for you illicit addictive substances uh they're equivalents for the mind and that's how people are conditioned so they're emotionally conditioned to accept it and their uh logical capacities are repressed inducing fear uh is is a great way to short circuit one's one's reasoning abilities and and that's that's what they do and once they have you hooked onto these things it's pretty much being able to control you so uh you would expect for regulatory mechanisms to be put in place from the governing bodies but when the governing bodies are uh benefiting so greatly from from these uh media then then you have no means of recourse except for the except for the population becoming awake and uh and mobilizing against it that really is what is needed at this time and that's where education comes in that's why education is so critical and why it's important for experts and intellectuals to do their public duty to speak to the public to inform uh inform and educate the people uh just as journalists would of facts intellectuals convey the best available knowledge and uh journalists convey facts and these are the first things to be targeted when democracy is being broken down when the people are no longer allowed to rule for themselves rule themselves is that why fascism is then appealing strength strong a strong authority figure will keep you safe i've never understood the appeal of fascism in fact it's repelling yet here we see it spreading as a virus around the world right now even here in america it's repelling to healthy mature adults who are not uh critically stressed at the time that portion of the population is shrinking and the more the population is deprived and unable to develop fully then you're still searching for a parent figure you can't get to the point of autonomy and self-rule uh you just wish to be protected from the world and that's when someone who would illegitimately and deceptively present themselves as the only one who can fix things and the solution to all problems uh, and we can usually detect those because they are over exaggerated cartoonish figures who don't speak of anything realistic at all but those are precisely the people individuals uh such vulnerable people would be attracted to because they're not in uh they're not in a mature thinking state at this time if you and i had arrived on a spaceship with the gifts that we currently have 
and we did a diagnosis of the species given all the events, the climate change, which is raging, the fascism, you name it. And I would turn to you and I would say, you know, the head of the psychiatric medical team from our planet, uh, I think this is a species headed towards mass extinction that has sort of run its course. Now that's most people probably want to turn it off at that point because they can't deal with it. But I'm just feeling detached and looking at all these different data day by day, the trajectory, the response. And I just feel like we're headed over a cliff. I'm not saying there'd be no humans left. I mean, you never know, but I just feel like civilization and what we know, what we built for all the good of it will collapse. And I'm not a soothsayer or a prophet. What do you feel? Well, uh, it's not something we can predict because we have a choice. It is literally up to us. There are solutions. When the problem is our own consciousness, then we are the solution as well. Uh, And it is that temptation to believe that nothing can be done. And... um, wishing to simply confine ourselves into our comfort zone that that is really what places us at this risk and uh seems and the problem seems daunting because we haven't tried to solve it uh if we look at our country and um how it had responded to the last presidency there were plenty of times when we could have intervened in fact there was no easier individual to intervene with and yet we gave all kinds of excuses especially the american psychiatric association by stating that psychiatrists have no role in a psychiatric problem and pulling ourselves out giving any reason to do so instead of the opposite giving ourselves every reason we can think of to participate in solving the problem uh same with vladimir putin Uh, There were many stages at which we could have intervened, and in fact, he was begging for intervention. But we had to to drive things to this point. I think many political scientists could tell you how we have created our own predicament. And and whoever wins in the Russia-Ukraine war uh, will still be... Uh, the loser because we're in a war of uh, immense war where an immense suffering has already been produced no matter the outcome and so uh, we need to learn as species not to annihilate ourselves uh, not to go down that path and we can draw many analogies and examples on how individuals draw themselves out of that state, how they can seek treatment, how they can gain advice, how we can draw from research, how we can consult experts. We have done none of that. So there's still a lot we can do. And the psychological help is only one part of it. We can also work on restoring our souls. And I think it's really come to that point. Um, that is why I titled uh, my book Profile of a Nation. I subtitled it 
Trump's mind, America's soul, uh, with a hope that I could urge the nation to consider its own soul, its own moral commitment, its own um, sense of place in in history and in the world, and our own responsibility for it. We're not just atoms swept up in the current of things, but we do have a responsibility, and we haven't taken it yet. I couldn't agree more with everything you said in terms of a possibility, and I agree with it. I just don't think we will. I hope I'm wrong, and I'm going to work hard to try to make it the fact that we don't do that. That's why I have the show and you. But if I'm honest, I'm I'm not seeing encouraging signs. And I'm not trying to ferment doom. If anything, I feel like I'm sounding the alarm in my own way, like you did, that if we don't do the things you said, it won't magically heal itself. We won't magically just work out like a Disney movie. That's not how life works with physics and natural laws. Well, we don't feel there's much we can do, or we don't feel there's hope because we're still privileged. If we were in the midst of drowning, we would do anything within our power to to take that gasp of air and save ourselves. So we're we're we've been in a comfortable position, I must say, uh, having traveled the world and worked in global health most of my career. That we are still in such a privileged and safe position that we are quick to lose hope. We need to we need to recognize that we're not in the worst position, but in the best position to make change happen. And so that's that's actually my new phase of research. Uh, as I was invited to co-found the Violence Prevention Institute, initially housed at Union Theological Seminary and now spreading to many divisions, um, I accepted the invitation because it is starting at a theological seminary and addresses the role of spiritual leaders, community leaders, creators, such as artists and um, creative thinkers, uh, to change our consciousness. That's what I believe is necessary because all the research, I mean, tremendous amounts of research has, has been done uh, over the last 30 or so decades. It's not, it hasn't been long that violence has become a scientific field uh, and tremendous strides have been made in it, but it hasn't been applied. And what does it take to apply it uh, is my next phase of study. And I feel it's very much the state of our soul, our consciousness. It will depend on our desire to change it because we can. You have taken on so much, and yet you're strong and as peaceful and resilient as ever. I'm glad. Where does all that strength come from? So in Profile of a Nation, I state that the solution is not on an individual by individual basis and that we don't treat people after they have become ill, but we treat it at the source, which is society. Uh, before any individuals get ill, 
we can prevent uh, or curb uh, widespread epidemics of uh, mental uh, compromise by intervening at the societal level. But we can also work on ourselves. So both the inner universe and the outer universe are the places where we can intervene most effectively. And I try to describe a spiritual practice that begins with self-care, centering ourselves, um, grounding ourselves, uh, and developing an ethical compass. That in itself is nourishing in ways that will surprise people who do a regular practice, far from being irrelevant to the practical state of affairs. It's the most critical practice we can do. And I think our the state of our species and becoming the first species in history, in the history of the planet, to be to be the first and only species capable of destroying itself, of driving itself to extinction by its own choice, that is precisely the question we need to address urgently. And it's a spiritual question that takes knowledge of psychology, certainly, and we see the effects of its absence in psychology, and then eventually in biology, including our biological death. But it is a spiritual question and an urgent one that has not yet been addressed. Wow, that is such a beautiful answer. Through your spiritual practice, and even though you're a scientist, are you in touch with that large, infinite part of you that's ineffable? And do you see yourself as that ineffable mystery moving through the world as the character of you, Dr. Bandy Lee? Well, as you may know, I have uh, a Master's of Divinity, which I attained at the same time as my medical doctorate. And, uh, well, over the years, I have practiced it only variably. Um, It has helped my science. It gives balance to science because science also can become more like a, a blind faith religion if you don't check it. Awareness of mystery of our areas of unknowing that, that we cannot know helps put science in perspective in ways that helps the science. But it also helps uh, the practice that I do, which is healing and, um, and restoring of uh, psychological and spiritual health of individuals who who suffer, uh, but there's also a societal restoration that is needed, and because of this, I have recently intensified my practice, uh, and as I said, related my violence prevention work by grounding it in in a theological seminary where these questions are explored, and I I believe that that is where the need is. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost 
and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.